Today's first scripture reading is from Psalm chapter 8, which can be found on the Pew Bibles on page 535. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. The second scripture reading is from Matthew 7, chapter uh, chapter 7, verses 9 to 11, which can be found on your pew Bibles on page 961. Which of you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer, would you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is present with us. You promised that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all the necessary knowledge that would be our teacher. And so we pray that you would teach us today, that you would open our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you know, there's a federal election going on right now here in Canada. And that, that election certainly has not been a boring race so far, has it? Um, at its start, it sort of felt like it was going to be a yawner, but my goodness, how things quickly turn in these election cycles. For me, one of the most fascinating moments of this election so far was an interview with Green Party leader Elizabeth May. It was uh, conducted by the CBC. They're in a cafe somewhere, and the reporter of Power and Politics, the show, was, was speaking to her. And near the end of the interview, just was peppering her with a, a couple of personal questions. And then she asked the Green Leader this question. She said, who's your personal hero? And without hesitation, Elizabeth May answered, Jesus Christ. And then 
almost as quickly, she apologized and said, I'm sorry. And the reporter asked, why did you say sorry? And she said, well, I, I sort of, I didn't bother to self-edit. Now, Elizabeth May, she's a Christian. She's an unabashed follower of Jesus Christ. And I love it that in this unscripted moment, her faith just bubbles to the surface, you know, just naturally. But her quick apology for naming Jesus Christ as her hero, while I get it in the context of being a political leader of a, of a you know, a, a multicultural, multi-faith nation, um, I find that response to be emblematic of a struggle almost any Canadian Christian has living in secular Canada. How do we speak appropriately, fittingly of our faith in our world? How can we speak of our faith with a proper confidence without needing to say at the end, I'm sorry. That's just not a Canadian thing. How do, how do we say, not with any arrogance, right? Not with any in-your-face triumphalist imposition, as has happened recently here in Toronto. How do we speak of our faith? Not with that, but also not with a mousy silence either. Not with a blushing awkwardness. For so many Christians in Canada, there is this pressure to keep their faith on the down low. There's an external pressure, I think we feel. You know, in the cultural moment we live now, religious convictions in general, Christian convictions in particular, are critiqued, often seen as offensive, maybe a quaint relic of the past, or at worst, a repressive force of bigotry in the world. So we feel that external pressure around us, but there, I think there's an internal pressure we also sense. There's an anxious uncertainty about Christianity, about what we believe, maybe a misunderstanding about the, the claims of Christianity. You know, you, it seems like the cultural narrative is that the church is in decline and there's so many questions posed towards Christianity and somewhere in the quiet spaces of our heart, we might wonder, is the gospel a spent power? And so doubt and uncertainty creeps in and there can be a, a tentativeness with which we hold our beliefs. But fear and anxiety are not a Christian frame of mind. Author Marilyn Robinson says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Rather, there has always been a, a poised, proper confidence Christians have held as a manner of being. And today we're beginning a series, a multi-week series, looking at the Apostles' Creed, that central summary of the Christian faith, that central summary held by Christians throughout time, throughout history, in every culture, in every country. And the Apostles' Creed begins with this poised assertion, I believe, not just once, but three times in the Creed, I believe, not I think so. Not, probably, not, I'm sorry, but a simple, confident, I believe. I hope that tells you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can hold to the Christian faith with a proper confidence. And you can do that because we live here in Canada. Here's the little secret that not too many people acknowledge. Everyone has a creed. Everyone has a personal creed of faith assumptions that are unprovable. Everyone does. 
unapprovable assertions that people hold to on the basis of faith. So for example, someone to say to you, how can you say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? That's, it's wrong to make exclusive truth claims like that. That is to make a creedal statement, a faith statement. It is saying, I believe there's no absolute truth. I believe that all religions are the same, therefore you shouldn't say that. Those are faith statements someone is making. Everyone has a creed of foundational, unapprovable assertions. And in fact, that is the only way that reason functions. It's really fascinating. Reason is this beautiful gift God has given to us. But reason functions under the guidance of an antecedent belief. It functions on the basis of a prior faith foundation. And then reason extrapolates all the implications of what that faith foundation guides and directs. So you can confidently say, I believe, because everyone else is doing it to you. They might pose it or frame it as, well, this is proof faith assumptions. And so for millennia across the ages in conditions really no different than ours today, in every culture and context, Christians have stood and confidently said, I believe. I believe in God. The Apostles' Creed was not, as many assume, the, uh, a creed written by the Apostles. Um, it took its name not because of the Apostles. The, there's a legend that each apostle wrote a line, the 12 lines of the Apostles' Creed. Not so. Uh, it's just an accurate summary of the apostolic teaching, the legacy on which the church has been founded. And the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed get traced back to really first century baptism, but some of the form we have now, it came in the second century. And, and Christians needed sort of an accurate summary of the apostles' authoritative teaching. And so the, the Apostles' Creed became sort of a gospel cheat sheet. Um, it's just like, oh yeah, here's my faith. Um, and it was a handy way for Christians to be able to speak about, to recite uh, the, the faith, that they could memorize it and speak it. Now that should tell you something about the Apostles' Creed. It means it doesn't tell you everything about the Christian faith, right? It's a summary. It's a summary of the essentials, but it doesn't spell out everything. There's lots of details to be fleshed out as well. And as you, we work through the Apostles' Creed, it, you might read things or hear things in it that seem perhaps a little strange or unfamiliar if you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe things that you have questions about. And I think that's a gentle reminder for us that there is more to Christianity that, than what you've learned or perhaps what you've been taught or what you have thought fully through. The Apostles' Creed has provided Christians with this, this biblical approach to the Christian faith, this tried and true by millions of believers across centuries, and it provides entry points into the wonder and the mystery of the gospel, this larger mystery. It is something so big. G.K. Chesterton once talked about the Apostles' Creed of Orthodoxy like a key that fits a lock and opens a door in it, into which you open into a whole new world that you spend the rest of your life exploring. This is what the Apostles' Creed invites us to, to and I hope you sense in this the invitation to explore, to discover areas of the gospel that in either our current day we either miss or we overlook. So let's dive in. Let's begin at the beginning, which 
It is a very good place to start. I believe. What does it mean when you say, I believe? Faith, that act of believing, involves the whole person, right? First of all, it means understanding. It means thinking. To believe is never this leap into a a dark place unknowingly. Not at all. Faith means understanding. It means thinking, which is a good thing, right? So many people assume that faith is this illogical, unthinking leap into, well, you just don't know. Not so. Faith means you have thought through, you have examined, you have explored the facts, the history of Christian faith. You examine the assertions that the Christian faith makes, that Jesus Christ makes, and you comprehend them. So there's that basic level of comprehension. I get it. I understand what this is saying, what this asserts. And again, this is so important because so many people never take the time to think it through, to examine and understand the Christian faith. We content ourselves with distortions or maybe misrepresentations, preferring a handed-down version that's easy to dismiss. I hope that's not you, but if it is, what if, if Christianity is possibly true, isn't it worth your best thinking and attention to discern it, to understand it? So believing involves thinking in intellectual assent, but to believe, to say I believe, also involves this, this deep heart trust, a confidence in God. It's more than I have an opinion. It's more than I am of the opinion that there is a God, but this stronger sense of no, 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 I put my trust in God. He personally affects my life. He brings my life comfort. Maybe you can get the difference this way. We can say, uh, there's a part of the creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So you might understand that as a central part of the Christian life. Yes, God forgives sin. He's done so through uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Through that, forgiveness is extended to all people. I get that intellectually. But to believe also involves personal appropriation, the trusting of this. To believe it, you know I am receiving that forgiveness for myself. I have received that reality, that identity that I am beloved and forgiven by God. It's a little like tasting food that you've never tried. Toronto's filled with great restaurants, so I am always getting great recommendations, and sometimes a few rise to the surface, like, you got to go here, and you got to try this dish, but I've never tried it, right? So I can understand from everyone who's recommending it, from restaurant reviews, that this is fabulous, this is good, I understand intellectually, but I never know until I taste that dish, Right? until that food hits my taste buds and uh, serotonin and endorphins get released in my body and I'm like, oh, that's good, right? Then you know, which is why scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a, a participation in this believing. Faith involves this personal trust and participation. And then faith also involves another thing. It involves a level of commitment, of allegiance. To say, I believe in God means I have committed myself to God. I am allowing this faith to shape my life, my choices, my priorities, what I give myself to, the way in which I view the world. It is like throwing an open door of my life to God, saying, God, I give you full access to my life 
as my Lord and my master. It means obedience. And isn't that the crux of faith? To believe always leads to a lived obedience, to place our lives in God's hands, to be hearers and doers of God's word. Because I think we all know we really don't believe what we don't obey or live. If our beliefs are disconnected from our actual lives, they might be nice ideas that we like to think about and consider, but they likely are not convictions of our heart that direct our lives. And so to say, I believe, means to to understand, to trust, to obey, to give ourselves fully to this. The earliest forms of the Apostles' Creed um, comes to us from baptisms in the early church. In the early church, when someone was baptized, it was usually on Easter morning, and they would be uh, led to the place where the baptism would take place. They would renounce Satan. They would be anointed with water, and they would be led to the water of baptism. Usually, they would be led naked. We don't do that here with baptism, so you're okay with that way. But at that point, they would. And then they would be asked this, do you believe in God the Father? And they would say with the Latin, usually, credo, which is, I believe. They'd be dumped. Do you believe in God the Son? I believe. They'd be immersed. Do you believe in God the Spirit? And they would be plunged down into the waters of baptism and raised up again. That threefold structure, this Trinitarian structure, is the form of the whole Apostles' Creed. So it emerged out of that baptismal confession and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And here's the interesting thing. So the Apostles' Creed not only taught the essentials of the Christian faith, it reminded Christians daily of what was uh, core to the faith, but it also reminded them of their baptism, of their new identity in Jesus Christ. A person became a disciple of Jesus and a member of the church by making this confession, by making this baptism, and it was a pledge of allegiance. And so every time we say the Apostles' Creed, it is a reminder not only of our identity, but of that allegiance. It's sort of like a couple when they renew their vows of marriage. They're recalling, they're renewing those vows. Every time we say the Apostles' Creed, we're renewing our vows, our pledge of allegiance to God. We say, I believe in God. But what sort of God? We live in a multi-faith world, of many religions, to say, I believe in God is not an uncommon thing, right? You know, many people who you live and work with and go to school, they would say, sure, I believe in God. Canadians believe in some generic transcendent force or reality, whether that is a deity or many different deities, whether that is an ineffable force, whether that is a higher power or whether that is something like Rudolf Otto, the German philosopher, called this numinous sense, this mysterium tremendum. A lot of different understandings of what I believe in God means. So the Apostles' Creed specifies a specific understanding of the God we as Christians believe in. Not a generic God, not the unmoved mover of philosophy, but the God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the whole creed really emerges out of that core basic confession, I believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. It begins with our encounter with Jesus, and Jesus reveals, uncovers a very particular revelation of who God is, right? Jesus, Scripture tells us, is the perfect 
image of the invisible God. He's God. And he reveals God to us as Father. And so the creed begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father because Jesus reveals God to us as Father. Remember when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, this is how you should pray. Father in heaven. And the disciples were flabbergasted because no one talks to God as a father. And yet Jesus says, this is who God is. Father in heaven. And later on, Jesus would say, God is my father and your father. And what Jesus is doing in all of this and what the Apostles' Creed is teaching us is we're invited into a relationship with God, that same relationship that Jesus enjoys with the Father. The relationship Jesus has with God is very unique, right? It's personal. It is one of intimacy. Jesus calls God Abba, Father, which is like Daddy, this this relationship of profound intimacy. It's a relationship of love and affection. It's one of shared purpose and mission. Jesus would say, whatever the Father does, those things the Son does too. It's like, I don't do anything that my Father doesn't do. There's this joint mission together. And so we understand God as Father because this is how Jesus relates to God. Jesus invites us to relate to God in that very same way. Now we understand that for probably a lot of people today, that way of describing God might be a little problematic for a variety of different reasons. And one Australian theologian, Ben Myers, asks many of the questions we might put to this creed. Does, does calling God this way, does it give a privileged place to masculine language? Does it imply that there's a gender in God? Those might sound like contemporary questions for us today, but those questions the early teachers of the church were sensitive to. And they took great pains to explain as they looked at the Bible and as they understood the Bible using the word father, that it used it without any connotations of gender. So what does it mean then? For Christians, the word father describes relationship. As the father and the son relate to one another, so we share that intimate relationship with God. Father and Son are relational words that speak of relationship of God the Father and God the Son, and we're invited to that relationship with God to become children, to become family. We are invited to know that sense of belonging to God. And then interestingly enough, the next descriptor is almighty, and it's connected to God the Father in important ways. Almighty can sound daunting, can't it? You know, we're, we're cautious around power, whether that be electrical power or political power, because we know that it can be dangerous if not treated properly. There can be harm experienced when you mess around with power. We've all seen how power can lead to domination and control and sometimes harm. But the creed teaches us that we are related to a God who possesses power, but not power as we know. The teachers of the early church would often speak of God like a breastfeeding mother, which is a marvelous maternal image. So the early church teachers would would haul out, trot out this image, again, because they understood father not in terms of any gender, but in terms of relationship. They could also speak of God as this breastfeeding mother. They were boring an image from scripture. And they were thinking, think of that image, right, of a child being fed at her mother's breast, cared for, protected. 
loved, nourished. The church is saying, this is God's power. That reading from Matthew chapter 7 reminds us of that strong, maternal, nourishing power of God. Where Jesus says, listen, if you, you give good gifts to your children. If you, though you are evil, know how to good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? God is a good, generous, nurturing Father. His power is directed at blessing. God's mighty power is not one of domination, but it is one of flourishing. It is the capacity to, to, to like project good into the lives of others. God's power is this power to sacrificially love and serve, the power to, to empower others, to bring flourishing to all things and all people. And yet, we struggle to, to really trust this truth, don't we? Because remember, if faith is not just cognitively understanding, but if it actually is trusting and obeying, what happens when suffering hits our lives? What happens when life doesn't go the way we expect? When we feel our own vulnerability or those we love? And I know some of you are right there now. Right? You're dealing with some deep suffering in your life. Physical, emotional, mental anguish. Those are some of the most significant challenges to faith, to believing. It is so hard to understand, to believe, to trust when suffering hits. You're trying to figure out, how does this fit? How does my suffering fit with the belief that God is both mighty and a good father? And so in our suffering, we can sometimes feel so isolated from God, maybe abandoned by God. That's a very common experience. Or, or we feel like there's, there's a shame or condemnation, like, like this is a punishment from God somehow. And I wish we had time to dive into this more. And if you're in the, this place, please, please talk to the pastoral staff. We are here to meet, to talk, to pray with you about this. But you need to know our faith offers us great hope. We have this unshakable guarantee that no matter what, even when we cannot figure it out, we are kept and held by our loving, mighty Father. Because God is good and mighty, you are not abandoned. That is not the case. And suffering, it can never be a punishment because Jesus has already taken our punishment for us. And even though we cannot figure it out, it does not mean God is not present and God is not a loving Father. You know, Christianity, it doesn't offer us an answer for suffering, which I think is probably better because as if an explanation would somehow take the sting away from our suffering, as if an argument is going to be the healing balm for our hearts. Christianity gives us something better. It gives us a person. It gives us the God who does something about our pain and suffering in this world in the person of Jesus. This is the revelation of the power of God, the God who is able to suffer with us and for us, who enters our brokenness and takes on our suffering. And so we can have confidence that there is nothing that is going to separate you from God's love, that you can trust him so much that he's going to provide you whatever you need for body, for soul. And he's able to do that because he's mighty God. 
And he desires to do this because he's a loving, faithful father. But there's still more. We're just in the first section here, and we could really do two or three sermons on this, but we can't. So, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We're going to wrap up here. Maker of heaven and earth, the God we encounter, the living God revealed in Jesus Christ, is the maker of all things. Everything that we see created by God, it belongs to Him, and it leads to worship. That psalm we read, Psalm 8, where the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, God, the works of your finger that I see all around us, the moon, the stars you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you should be mindful of them? What are human beings that you care for them? The psalmist is just lost in wonder and awe and praise as he looks at creation. If, if that little phrase, maker of heaven and earth, if that seems sort of abstract, do what Psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 8 does, would you consider the created world? Today, go admire the beauty of the flowers. Look at the changing fall colors. Watch a river flow by. Just watch quietly the river go by. Watch birds in flight. Study your hand as you punch keys on the keyboard or as you watch someone play piano. Observe an apple. Seriously, look at an apple, at all the striations of color. Taste the tart sweetness, the texture of it. Get lost in the wonder and goodness of creation because creation speaks to you of God. God has given us two books, Scripture that reveals Himself, but also creation. It speaks It voices the praise and wonder in God, and to confess God as the maker of all things, it speaks of the goodness of this material world. This is a part of the beauty of this confession, that God created this physical world and he called it good. It tells us that God is interested in everything, in physics and in city parks, in music and movies. He's very interested in our bodies and how they function and work, in math and mechanics. It is all from the hand of God and God is keenly interested in it. And so when we are fascinated by all those things too, you know that's something of the image God resonating in you with and that whatever you are studying or interested in, the voice of God is speaking to you through that. It speaks of the design of this world not just the goodness of it, the reality of it, but the design of this world, the physical universe, the way the material world works is comprised, the way our bodies function. These are not random realities, right? There is design and purpose to our world. Scientists continue to be astonished as they discover the the stunning, complex wonder of the universe's design. In fact, the whole scientific project is premised on the design and predictability of this universe. And God loves this creation. It is the overflow of his delight. And because we are related intimately to God as Father, because we are attached to God's purposes, we are called to care for this creation. The creation matters to God, and so it better matter for us. Caring for creation, I'm convinced, is the ultimate pro-life stance for us as Christians, because squandering physical resources and God's natural gifts 
it's not only going to cause real harm to people and our economy, but it endangers the lives of most of the vulnerable in the world. And so climate change, you know, it disproportionately affects the poor and the vulnerable, the very people Christ calls us to love and care for. And so we need to get serious about climate change. Did you see what was going on Friday across the world? Hallelujah. Hey, so good. Some of you were there. Bless you for being there and for standing up and saying, we need to take serious. If you didn't know, didn't hear about it, it was called the climate strike and there's beautiful uprising in various places across the world, over seven million people participating, led by the young of this world, protesting inaction on climate change and insisting as a society, we need to get serious about this. All of those who were there, who hold to this faith that God is the maker of heaven and earth, you were making your confession in the Apostles' Creed more than just words. You were saying, no, 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 this necessarily leads me to take obedient action. It moves us, rooted in a deep abiding hope, of course, not out of fear, but in a rooted and abiding hope for God's kingdom and his restoration of all things to seek out solutions in democratic processes, to take personal steps to reduce our energy use, I hope that it leads so many of those young people to pursue careers that will serve in finding new technologies, new means of energy use and storage, because all those are practical ways we live out this confession, I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. Because in creation, we meet the living God. And so our care for creation honors and nurtures not just creation and others, but our relationship with God himself. Isn't that fascinating how in creation God is committing himself to this world? Like God doesn't create the world, set it in motion, and then head off to other projects, you know, leaving the earth on its own. Not at all. God has intimately tied himself with this world. He commits himself to this world. This is what we're confessing in this involving himself intimately in this world, which means that the creed doesn't end here, but moves next to how God entered time and space in his son, Jesus Christ, because of his commitment to creation. But that's next week. Come back for that next week. Until then, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed now. I invite you to speak these words of the Creed together, to speak them with a humble but poised confidence. And as we speak them, let's also then go and live these words out in our lives. And at the end, you don't have to say sorry, okay? Let's stand. Let's recite this together. Here are the words. Our marriage vows, our allegiance to God, once again, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. You've heard our Pledge of Allegiance, Father. You've heard our renewed vows. This is what we believe. This is our hope. This is our life. Would you give us the creativity and courage now to know how best to live this out, to deeply, profoundly trust the truths of what we have just confessed, and to obey all the paths where they take us. Lead us, Jesus, into a faithful living of all of our faith. In your name we pray. Amen.